when we first started this series, uh, we looked at five different uh, principles that we need to remember and keep in mind as we are seeking to interpret a very difficult book to interpret in the Bible, uh, a book that has inspired a lot of debate and discussion uh, and, and even uh, differing views on some of the finer points, even among very faithful Christians over the last 2,000 years. So if we feel like we've not solved any major issues in Revelation, don't worry. We're in the same camp as you know, every other Christian that's ever lived. So uh, we're in good company there. The five, there are five principles that we wanted to uh, maintain and keep in mind as we work through the book of Revelation. The first one was to keep the main thing the main thing, to remember the main point of Revelation, which is a call for saints, for those who know Jesus, to endure with faith until Christ returns. Revelation is a book of inspiration to Christians to press on in faithfulness regardless of the circumstances around us. We want to remember, second of all, not just the main thing, but also to remember the original audience, that Revelation is a book for the church in every age, but it was first a, a letter to, a, uh, to seven churches in Asia Minor in the first century. This was a letter to people who were meant to understand and to know what it was saying. There was meaning to the original hearers, the original readers, and, and the way that they understood it, what John intended through the Holy Spirit to communicate to them, needs to be what we are pressing for in Revelation. The third principle, and we'll get to this one uh, specifically today, is to pay attention to repetition. Revelation repeats itself regularly. Uh, A word that we used to describe this early on was recapitulation. And you know what recapitulation is. If you watch football in football season, and there's a controversial play where the referees have to go and view video of what just happened on the play, you know what recapitulation is. It's telling the same story all over again from a different point of view. Every different camera angle on the play in contention is recapitulation of the play. If you've ever seen the movie Groundhog Day with Bill Murray uh, or the sci-fi action thriller Edge of Tomorrow with Tom Cruise, you know what recapitulation is. Every morning these characters wake up, they go through the whole day, they know all the things that are going to happen, uh, they go through the whole day, they go to sleep, or in Tom Cruise's case in Edge of Tomorrow, he's killed by aliens. But then he wakes up the next day to do it all over again. And, if you, and as you watch these films, you're going, this, I feel like this is just cheap screenwriting because it's just the same story 12 times. There's, anyway, you could tell it in five minutes, Tom. Um, Tom Cruise. Uh, you know what recapitulation is. It's, it's getting to the end just to start all over again. All these ideas, uh, instant replay, these movies that we know, help us to understand this idea. And this, is, uh, uh, and this is what is happening regularly throughout Revelation. We have the seven seals, which seem to bring us to the end of history with uh, the, the sealed uh, of the Lord in Revelation 7, who belong to the Lamb. And it seems like new heavens, new earth is about to come. And then... It all starts over again with the trumpets in 8 and 9. And we work through all of those trumpets and we get to the end of the trumpets. And and there's a voice that cries out, the kingdom of the world is now the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And it seems like we're, there we are. We're in new heavens, new earth. It's the end of things, the end of, of revelation, right? Nope. And then we start all over again with this visionary series that we looked at over the last couple of weeks in chapters 11 through 14. And we get to the end of, uh, of 14 and we have this picture of the lamb and the 144,000 that belong to him in this harvest of the earth, this wheat harvest of the earth and a grape harvest of the earth, the grape harvest going um, uh, into the wine press of God's wrath. And it seems like justice is finally done. We're all finished right? Chapter 15, we start all over again. Tell the whole story just to stop and start over one more time. At the end of every visionary cycle in Revelation, we seem to be brought to the end of all things and God's final judgment, only to turn the page and and start a, a new visionary cycle from the beginning all over again. It's like the same story, but told from a slightly different perspective. If we try to read Revelation like it's mapping out a tight chronology of end-time events with atomic precision, friends, we are going to be frustrated and confused because we'll go through these recapitulated cycles and we'll start to wonder, how many final judgments are there? How many times does Jesus have to return for his church? How many times does Satan really need to be defeated? Is God that weak? Well, the answer to all of these questions, how many final judgments, how many times does Jesus come back, how many times is Satan defeated, the final answer to all of these is one. 
But John is telling that one story of victory multiple times through Revelation. Revelation seems to be, if I can say it this way, spiraling through the years and the events through uh, between Christ's ascension and his imminent return at least three, maybe four or more times in the course of this book. Now, this is not meant to be confusing, although if we're trying to read Revelation chronologically, we'll get really confused by this. But this recapitulation, this circling back to, to tell the story one more time is meant by John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to solidify in the mind of the reader, to solidify in the heart of the Christian, the main point of this book, which is a call to endure with faith until Christ returns. How many times does John need to tell the church to endure with faith until Christ returns? Well, as many times as the Holy Spirit inspired him to do it. So at least three, maybe four, probably more than that. This week we get to the bowl judgments. We had seven seals, seven trumpets. Now we're going to look at the seven bowls. And as we work through the seven bowl judgments, we will feel a sense of literary deja vu, like we've been here before. And that's because over the course of the seals and the trumpets, even the visions in between the trumpets and the bowls, we kind of have been here before. We have heard this story before, and we're going to hear it again. John, in the bowl judgments, is not necessarily telling us something new altogether, but he's telling us what he's already told us from a different camera angle, from a a little bit further down the road, from a perspective that seems to be even a little bit closer to the perfect holiness of God. Even as we've been spiraling through the years and events, things will be going on between Christ's ascension and his return. So also has John, it seems, in Revelation, been moving closer and closer to the very perfect holy presence of God as he, gets, as he tells these stories all the way through. Revelation, the end of 15, the beginning of 16, through the bold judgments, tells us that ultimately at the end of all things, God's perfect justice... And his righteous wrath will be perfectly satisfied. The bold judgments guarantee that for us. That God's perfect justice will be done and his righteous wrath will be satisfied. The the main idea that comes to us from these two, two chapters is this. That God's justice sees perfectly. His justice sees perfectly. And his holiness will certainly be vindicated. Zeke read for us this morning. Uh, Revelation uh, 15, 5 through the end of that chapter. And there, at the end of Revelation 5, we see that God's holiness clearly reveals our sin. God's holiness reveals our sin. The heavenly tent of witness at the end of Revelation 15 is the vantage point for what comes next, for what comes in the bold judgments. And the heavenly tent of witness is also meant to be our vantage point even on our own lives and our own relationship to God. Now, the tent of witnesses, it's, uh, or sanctuary of the tent of witnesses, it's referenced in verse 5 of chapter 15, is a reference to the tabernacle. You remember the tabernacle, that tent that God instructed the Hebrews to build that would facilitate their worship of him after he delivered them out of slavery in Egypt? The innermost room of that tabernacle, that tent, was called the most holy place. The same thing in the temple when the the permanent temple structure was built. That most inner room, the holy of holies, the most holy place was where God's Ark of the Covenant was placed. Do you remember that big box overlaid with gold with the images of, of cherubim, these angelic creatures atop it? And it was the place, it was the room where the high priest of Israel would go once a year to offer sacrifice for the sins, intentional and unintentional, of the people of Israel once a year on the day of atonement. This place, the Holy of Holies, the sanctuary of the tent of witness, was where the very real presence of God dwelt among his people. And it was merely a shadow of the perfect presence of God in all of his holiness in heaven. When, when John looks and sees in verse 5, the sanctuary of the tent of witness opened, it's not the tent of witness in the wilderness after Egypt. It's the tent of witness in heaven. It is the real tent of witness. It is the substantive tent of witness, if we can put it that way. It is the place where God's presence dwells, not just on earth among his people, but where God's presence is perfectly, where his holiness is there unhindered and uh, unveiled by anything. The heavenly reality that the tent of witness pointed to 
is the vantage point. It's the perspective point. It's the camera angle for this final vision of God's justice in the seven bowls. And it's this vantage point that we've been spiraling ever closer to all throughout Revelation. Think about it. We go back to the, the kind of the beginning of, of, of Revelation. We have this vision of the Son of Man, the risen Jesus, appearing in power and glory to John, letters to seven churches. And then in Revelation 4 and 5, we have this vision, this picture. John is taken to the heavenly throne room. And it's there in the heavenly throne room where he sees the, uh, from kind of a, a, a panoramic perspective, he sees the throne in the center and the four creatures around it and the 24 elders and a multitude of other angels all worshiping God. And it's there from that perspective, he sees the lamb standing as though slain who alone has authority to take the scroll from the father's hand and open it. The throne room, this panoramic perspective on, on, on God's dwelling place is where we saw the seven seals opened. But then we get to the trumpets, and, and in the trumpet cycle, John seems to be spiraling in a little bit closer because at the end of the seals, there's silence in heaven for about half an hour, a silence that, that seems to precede a judge coming to sit in judgment. And so we're brought from this panoramic view of the heavenly throne room, now a little bit closer into the courtroom where God the judge has taken his seat, and the trumpets are blown, and the trumpet judgments come. And then after the trumpet judgments, or maybe as part of the trumpet judgments, depends on how you read Revelation, but at the end of the day, it's not that big of a deal. We have this visionary interlude, this series of a number of different visions in chapters 11 through 14. And there, we're, we're seeing all of these visions with the Ark of the Covenant visible. At the end of the trumpets, John sees the Holy of Holies in heaven open, and he sees the Ark of the Covenant and it's from there that we, we see this, uh, uh, the, these visions in chapters 11 through 14. And now we get to the bowls, and the Holy of Holies is still open. The Ark of the Covenant is still visible, but now we're, we're kind of brought even closer in and to a more intense presence of God as the Holy of Holies is filled with smoke, the smoke of God's glory and power, and no one can enter into it until all of the judgments are, are, are finished. And so we, we seem to be spiraling in closer to God with every visionary cycle, every visionary series that comes in Revelation. And now we're here in the heavenly place of God's perfect holiness, His perfect presence, unveiled, unhindered, uninhibited. And He's about to talk about judgment. He's about to reveal how He judges sin. The heavenly tent of witness is our vantage point for the bowls of wrath, but it's also our vantage point for looking at our own sin. Friends, we must, knowing that the most holy place, the holy presence of God is our vantage point for looking on the world, we must see sin for what it is. From this vantage point, we must see our sin for what it is. It is open rebellion against a holy God, a perfectly holy God. The bowls that follow in chapter 16 are intense. And they're hard to read because of the totality of judgment against sin that they describe. The bowls, as we read them, you may find them chafing against your own conception of justice because you may feel like the punishment that's doled out in the bowls doesn't seem to fit the crime of the sins that it's poured out on. But it is this doctrine, the consistent teaching of Scripture, that God has a righteous anger against sin and that He punishes it that causes many to doubt and even to disbelieve that such a God could be loving. We want God's justice to be blind. Think about Lady Justice, the statue that often stands outside of courthouses all around the nation, even other places of the world. Lady Justice stands with a sword in one hand, scales in the other, and a blindfold over her eyes. She stands with a blindfold over her eyes because justice is, is meant to be blinded to the, the physical realities of the people standing before her. Justice is not supposed to take into account the stature of a person, the wealth of an individual, the social status of some. Their, justice is only supposed to consider the facts that are brought before it in, in doling out a judgment. We want justice to be blind. But the vantage point of the bulls reveals something to us about God's justice. God's justice isn't blind. His justice is perfectly sighted. His judgment is impartial, to be sure. God does not count anyone's appearance or their wealth or their status when considering their case. But God does come to his bench with all the facts already in hand. He already knows the case better than the prosecution or the defense. 
God sees in his perfect holiness everything. He sees the hatred we harbor against others. He sees the lies we tell to save face with subordinates. He sees the intentional rounding error you included on your taxes to stay in a preferable tax bracket. He sees the affair you had that you thought you managed to keep secret from everybody else. He sees with perfect clarity every one of the innumerable actions that you and I have ever committed that we knew were wrong and all of the ones that we justified as as not so bad as compared to, well, of course, compared to Hitler, right? You see, our problem is that we think God is unjust in judging sin as severely as he does in the bold judgments because we compare our sin to the sins of others when we should be comparing our sin to the holiness of God. Comparing my sin, me comparing my sin or my relative moral goodness to the relative moral goodness of of somebody else or you comparing your moral goodness to my moral goodness is is like trying to compare the the straightness of the leaning tower of Pisa to a wall that I would build. I'm not a good wall builder. The tower of Pisa will look straight compared to a wall that I build because I build bad walls. But that doesn't mean the tower's straight. It might be more straight than something I construct, but the thing's still crooked. And so when we compare our, our sin, when we compare our moral ranking, if you will, against other sinners, that's all we're doing. We're comparing one faulty object, one fallen sinner against another fallen sinner. We're not comparing, we're not comparing anything against truth, against reality, against an unchanging, objective, perfect definition of holiness. There is no mixture in God of indiscretion in Him. His total sinlessness burns with the white-hot glory of every sun in this universe. His holiness is the standard of goodness, the objective, unchanging, undefiled standard of goodness. My decency is not that standard. Your decency is not that standard. Not even Mother Teresa's decency and morality is that standard of goodness. In the presence of God, we all fall infinitely short of his glory and goodness, and his all-seeing eye is not blinded to our sin. He sees all of it perfectly. Brought into the holiest place in heaven in Revelation 15. This is our vantage point for all the judgments that come. These are not unjust judgments. This is God's righteous and holy anger against sin and sinners and wicked spiritual forces poured out as only a perfectly just judge can do. John continues in his vision. You read along in your Bibles too. Revelation 16. We'll just re- I'll read through the whole chapter. Excuse me. John writes, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like blood, like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, just are you, O Holy One, who, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints uh, and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake 
keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh, bowl poured out, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath, and every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. If God's holiness is our vantage point on sin... Then we see in chapter 16 that God's wrath, because he's perfectly holy, God's wrath against sin is also perfect. God's final wrath against the disobedience, against rebellion against him will be perfect. The bowls of God's wrath we see are, first of all, against sinful agents. They are directed against sinful people and sinful spirits. Where the trumpet judgments in chapters 8 and 9 were directed at the idols of this world and idolaters as well, the bowls are primarily directed at the individual agents, the people and spirits making decisions, those that are behind the deception of idolatry, both human and spiritual. The progression of the bowls as we followed through, this is maybe where you had a little bit of literary deja vu, like I've been here before. The progression of the bowls follows the progression of the trumpets almost perfectly. If you go back and you line up the seven trumpets, what, uh, uh, what they affected and, and in what order, and you do the same thing with the bowls, you'll find almost a one-to-one correlation between the two. First the earth is affected, then the seas, then the springs uh, of water, and so on all the way down. Where the trumpets uh, affected only a third of the created order, here now the bowls affect all of whatever it is that they fall on or poured out on. And we've said before that the plagues, the trumpet plagues, seem to mirror, but in a slightly different order, the plagues of Egypt Uh, there that we read in Exodus. And like the trumpets before them, the bowls of wrath do essentially the same thing. They're calling back into the mind of the reader. Those of us who are familiar with how God has judged sin in the past, they're taking us back to a, if I could put it this way, a paradigmatic moment, a, a moment in the history of God's people that typifies how God judges wickedness and idolatry. Let us also see, though, in the progression of the bowls, and we could do the same with the trumpets, that these plagues seem to be undoing what was accomplished in the seven days of creation in Genesis. The bowls, friends, are a picture of the Creator undoing His creation, which has been warped and disfigured by sin and by sinful people. It was the deception of the serpent and the sin of Adam that led all humanity to fall into the lie, into the deception that God is not good. Or perhaps that God is not as good as he should be. Or maybe that God is not as good as I would be if I were God. The dragon, the beast, the false prophet echo that same lie in the ears of humans who are hungry for power. God is not good. He's not as good as he could be. He's not as good as you would be if you were God. You take power. You be in charge. You show him the right way to do it. And the dragon, who is Satan, the beast, and the false prophet, they scream this message all the louder for those who, who even fe- begin to feel the effects of sin in their life and are considering repenting and turning to God. Satan and his minions, Satan and his forces scream that lie. God is not good. God is not as good as he could be. God is not as good as, as, as you would be if you were God. They scream it all the louder in the ears of those who are thinking about repenting so that they might not turn and be healed. It may look to our eyes like Satan is the friend of sinful humans, but brothers and sisters, let us understand that Satan hates them all. Because every human being is made in the image of God. And because God has sent his son to redeem humanity by dying in our place and being raised from the dead, to call everyone who believes in him to salvation and life in abundance because God has not just made you in his image, but he sent his son to rescue you from your sin. Satan hates you. 
Even if you have no love for God whatsoever, Satan still hates you. He longs for your destruction. Why? Because your mere existence is a picture, a reflection of the glory of God and his moral perfection. In some way, even if marred, even if broken by your sin, you still reflect something about God and Satan hates God. And because you reflect his character, he hates you too. He hates every one of us, even those of us who seem to rather like him and seem to rather like being a part of his pseudo kingdom. It's the hatred of the enemy against image bearers of God that is behind, that is driving, motivating God's just punishment of the beast and his kingdom there in the, uh, uh, there in the, the fifth bowl. The fifth angel pours out his bowl and the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. Friend, if you love justice and you hate evil, you should find yourself delighted to see the kingdom of spiritual darkness and the kingdom of evil thrown into utter darkness where it has no power. And there, after that bowl is poured out, we see in in feverish rebellion against God, the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, this unholy trinity working together all the harder to deceive the nations to tell that lie, to scream that lie in their ears that God is not good or God is not real. He's not as good as as you would be as God. They they deceive the nations even further into hating God by sending out these loud, senseless, demonic spirits that look like frogs to rally sinful humanity against God. Now, the image of demonic spirits like frogs, friends, try not to read this literally. Read it symbolically. Read it for the symbol that it is. These frogs remind us of the plague of frogs that... God sent upon the Egyptians as they were still holding the Hebrews in slavery. But as one ancient Christian Philo said, these spirits like frogs, uh, these spirits are described like frogs because they're loud and arresting. They, they make a lot of noise, but ultimately their croaking is senseless. These demonic spirits that Satan and his minions use in the world, that Satan inspires idolatrous and totalitarian governments to speak into the minds of people, it may sound compelling because it's loud, but the message that they preach is utterly meaningless. The sixth bowl is interesting because it looks like Satan and sinful humanity are gathering together to fight against God. These wicked spirits go out. They deceive people into hating God, kings into hating God. And we see this this massive assemblage of troops against God, like they're ready for battle at your favorite place and mine, Armageddon. (laughs) Armageddon, as it's called here, is the place of this final battle between God and sinful humanity. Now, Armageddon is an interesting word because Armageddon is a compound word. It's a word that's made up of two words. John says in Hebrew, it is called Armageddon. And John does a weird thing here because it says in Hebrew, it's called Armageddon, but Armageddon is kind of a a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word. In Hebrew, it's two words, Har and Megiddo. Har is the Hebrew word that means hill or mountain. Megiddo is a name of a location just north of Jerusalem. So Armageddon, Har Megiddo is mountain of Megiddo. There's only one problem with this, friends, if you know your biblical geography. Megiddo isn't a mountain. Megiddo is a plain. It it sits atop a kind of like a mesa like we have. It's slightly elevated, but nothing that we would call a hill or a mountain. Big, flat, broad area. So Armageddon, mountain of Megiddo, is not really a real place, it does not seem. What is John saying here? He's reminding us that mountains are places where people gather. We see people gather at mountains all the time in the Old Testament. The people of, uh, of Israel, the Hebrews, gather together at Mount Sinai to hear God give them the law. We have, we have pagan kings calling their armies to gather around them. Uh, uh, at mountains or at, at hill sites. And so this is a gathering place. And Megiddo though it's a plain, was a plain, a place in Israel's history, both in Judges and in Second Kings, where significant enemies of God were defeated and defeated totally. This image of wicked uh, human and spiritual forces gathering against God at Armageddon, at Har Megiddo, at the mountain, which is really a plain, Megiddo, this ultimate gathering against God we find is fruitless. There's not even a battle. 
There's not even a single blow landed by this sinful army against God that is gathered here. The assumption is that everybody shows up ready to fight and are summarily defeated without even, without even a single swing of a sword by these people. This is not much of a battle uh, uh, if we look at it. God just wins outright. At Armageddon, this symbolic picture of God's final perfect judgment against all sinful agents. This is a picture of God's wrath against sin and those who commit it. He destroys them utterly, finally, and with perfect justice. Armageddon is not a scary picture. Armageddon is a picture of victory. It's a picture of Christ's and God's final victory over all wickedness. Now, as I said before, it's common for us to try to read Revelation chronologically. We're, we're used to that in our Western in our, our Western culture, most of the time when people write things down, their stories, when they write out novels, we're meant to read them kind of chronologically. You start at the beginning and you end at the end. But that was not necessarily the case in apocalyptic, Hebrew apocalyptic literature like we have in Revelation. It was not necessarily the case even in Daniel, uh, those apocalyptic portions of Daniel, or the apocalyptic portions of Zechariah in the Old Testament. The prophets who are writing those things often jump around and skip through time to describe things at different places. So if we're trying to read Revelation chronologically, we're going to get confused. But we try to read it that way because we're kind of taught to read that way just by our culture. That's nothing right or wrong. It just it is how we is. We are. It is how we are. That's the right way to say it. We try to figure out when all of these things are going to happen so we can know precisely when Christ is going to return. We want to try to set our clocks to, to turn off an alarm on the day of Armageddon so we can know to either show up or stay away or whatever it is that we need to do. I think we've seen over the last many weeks though, that Revelation is exceptionally difficult to try to read this way. If John is really recapitulating, if he's telling the same story from different angles as he spirals closer into the very perfect holy presence of God, we're going to get really thrown off by trying to read Revelation as a chronology, like it starts at the beginning and it ends at the end. It starts at the beginning, it gets to the end, and then it goes to the beginning again. And then it gets to the end, and then it goes back to the middle, and then it starts at the beginning one more time to get us to the end again. Rather, I think we should read Revelation, not chronologically, like a, like a narrative playing out, A, B, C, D, all the way to Z in perfect order, but rather to read Revelation like a grand painting of God's final historic victory, looked at from different, different angles, different perspectives, different images to see just how victorious God is. Jesus' words in chapter 16, verse 15, remind us that Revelation is not a prophecy that we can set our eschatological alarm clocks by. Jesus says, I am coming like a thief. That doesn't mean he comes in destruction. It doesn't mean he comes to steal. What it means is I'm coming unexpectedly. I'm coming suddenly. I'm coming without warning. You won't see it happening until it's already up on you. That's what it means to say I'm coming like a thief. If Jesus is coming like a thief, then certainly, and we have no idea to know exactly when he will return, this is not something, a revelation then is not something we can set our, our eschatological alarm clocks by, right? We can't just sit there and, and keep time. And why wouldn't Jesus just give us the perfect timeline and tell us exactly when he's coming and, and not mess around with this thief business? Well, I think because he knows our hearts. At least I think he knows mine. That if I knew precisely when Christ would return, that I would probably sit on my hands and not do much of anything until he does. That I might be like one who gets really comfortable just kicking my shoes off at the end of the day, putting my feet up and just chilling until he gets back. But Jesus says, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who doesn't kick his shoes off and, and lay back at the end of the day. <laughs> Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on so he might not go about naked and be seen exposed. The call to the Christian is not to to set our end times alarm clocks according to what we read in Revelation, but rather, as we've seen all the way through Revelation up to this point, to remain spiritually vigilant, to endure with faith until Christ comes again. Not compromising with faithlessness, not compromising with idolatry, not compromising with sin, so that we might, be caught, so that we might not be caught spiritually naked when Christ returns but instead rather to be found busy with the gospel, faithful in all of our dealings, enduring with love for Jesus, no matter what's going on in the world around us. 
The bowls reveal God's, uh, show us God, our God's active wrath, his perfect wrath against sin and against sinful agents. And the bowls, as they roll out to us in order, reveal to us at least three things. First of all, they reveal God's perfect justice. God's perfect. I'm going to put a slash in there. Final justice. I don't think we need to say a whole lot more about this point, but just to point it out, to point out the completeness of each bowl. As each bowl is poured out, everything that it's poured out on is affected. Not just a quarter like we saw in parts of the seals, not just a third in the trumpets, but all of it. These bowls do not affect a fraction of the world or a fraction of those who dwell on the earth, but every single one of them. This is because God's final justice is total. His final justice is impartial. His final justice will be utterly complete. Read what the angel says or sings about God in Revelation 16, verses uh, 5 and 6. Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. They have shed the blood of saints and prophets, speaking about those who, who dwell on the earth, those who love Babylon, those who are marked by the beast. They have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. God's justice is perfect. And even the saints who were under the altar, all the way back in Revelation 6, who were crying out to God, How long, Lord? How long until you vindicate our blood with your justice on those who have put us to death? Even they are praising God for his perfect and final justice. Verse 7, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The bowls, friends, reveal that God's justice is perfect. It also reveals the final unrepentance of many. The final rebellion of of many who hate God. Look for just a moment briefly at the final result, the result of the final four plagues. Chapter 16, verse 9. They cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Chapter 16, verse 11. Cursing, they cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores. They did not repent of their deeds. In verse 14, we see all of the wicked kings of the earth assembling against God for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Verse 21, they cursed God for the plague of hail because the plague was so severe. You probably have echoing in your minds the end of Revelation chapter 9. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. At the end of God's judgment, the final result for those who hate God is just more hatred of him. I'm always glad when I read things written by people who are smarter than me and it has been written by one smarter than me, that modern atheism has two doctrines. Doctrine number one, there is no God. Doctrine number two, I hate him. It, it sounds ludicrous, because it is, and yet, in conversations with many militant atheists who are inspired by the likes of you know Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and those to believe these two things, there is no God, or is, there is very possibly most likely no God, and on the off chance that there were, I hate a stinking guts. Those seem to be the two doctrines of atheism. The absurdity of these two doctrines, though, is abundantly clear, and it's the abundantly clear reality for those who receive the final wrath of God in the bold judgments. They receive the wrath of the God that they hate and they never believed in, and the final result is... They just hate him all the more. As God demonstrates that he is just, as God demonstrates that he judges sin perfectly in those who are opposed against him, the result of those who receive that judgment is just to hate God even more. The bulls reveal the final unrepentance of many. And God in his justice, God in his wrath is just to judge them. But the bulls reveal finally and maybe in a secondary way, like, like in the shadows here, or just uh, in, the, in, the, in the edge of our, our peripheral vision, the bowls reveal to us maybe the best thing of all, the wonderful grace of God in Christ. Sin has consequences. The bowl judgments reveal that to us. Sin has consequences. And those consequences are bound up in God's active wrath, His final judgment against sin. His wrath will come on the last day in full, and it will come perfectly. 
There will be no question about his justice because everything will be plain for all to see that he gives to each person what their sin has brought them. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So if you die as a result of your sin due to the anger of God against it, you get what you earned. You get what you worked for. But the very good news of the gospel is that though the wages of sin is death, God gives a gift to the undeserving. The gift of God is not death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The very good news of the gospel is that God's wrath against sin was received by someone else on our behalf. God's perfect justice against all of our sin, all of our moral indiscretions, all of the things that we think we're keeping secret from everyone that God sees perfectly have been paid for in Jesus when he took our place on the cross in the place of sinners so that we might be saved from the fearfulness of the day of the Lord. Isaiah 53 points us to the reality that Christ is that suffering servant of God who is smitten and afflicted by God, smitten, stricken, pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed by God for our iniquities. His chastisement for sins that he never committed is the means to our peace with God and his wounds are our healing, the prophet says. Paul affirms this wonderful gospel truth that Jesus Christ died for the undeserving, that they might be saved. When, he writes, when, when Paul says in Romans 4, righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and who was raised for our justification. Moreover, Peter the apostle encourages Christians to be confident in their salvation, in their rescue from the wrath of God. When he writes in 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might live. No, I'm sorry. I read that wrong. I didn't read it wrong. I just didn't read it right. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. Peter citing Isaiah 53, by his wounds, you have been healed. Though under the wrath of God by our own rebellion against him, the good news of the gospel, the good news of scripture is that we need not experience his wrath as these many do in the bold judgments. We need not be those who are assembled against God only to be defeated perfectly and finally on the last day. The just God who pours wrath out on sin has poured out his just anger against our rebellion against him on his own son in our place In Christ, there's healing, there is restoration, there's reconciliation with this most holy God. There is deliverance from the righteous wrath of God against sin for everyone who falls on Christ in faith. The bold judgments reveal to us the wonderful, remind us of the wonderful, wonderful, extravagant, prodigal grace of God to sinners in Jesus Christ. Don't miss that. Don't miss that seeing what the bowls are. They're God's act of wrath against sin, seeing what they reveal, his perfect justice, the final unrepentance of those who hate him, and also the wonderful, glorious reality of salvation from sin. This morning, friends, I don't know what else to do but to to call us to receive the gift of salvation for what it is, to receive this salvation for what it is. It is rescue. It is deliverance from God's justly deserved wrath against wickedness. And not just wickedness in the abstract, wickedness in the concrete, wickedness that lives in my heart, wickedness that that lives in yours. There's salvation from those horrible thoughts that you think. There's salvation from the, the just deserts of your rebellion against God, of your attempt to be like him or to be better than him. There's salvation from the wrath of the only true, perfect, holy God. And that salvation is in Jesus Christ the Son of God who took on flesh, that he might live a life without sin in our place, die in our place, and be raised so that if we come to trust him, turning from our sin, falling on him in faith and in love for all that he is and all that he reveals to us about who the Father is, that we might be saved, justified to God, made right with him forever. Not the objects of his wrath, but the recipients of his mercy and his grace and his favor and adoption as sons and daughters. Does this feel like deja vu? We've been here before. We've been to this point before. And not just in Revelation. We've been to this point before in innumerable sermons in years past. You, friend, have been to this point before 
in innumerable church settings like this in your life. Many of you have been coming to church even longer than I've been alive. You've been to this point before where a pastor stands in front of you and says, God judges sin. You need a savior. You've been here before. How many more times do you need to circle back until you receive it? How many more church services, how many more invitations do you need to sit through and listen to until you finally go, you know what? Maybe he's right. And not just this pastor, but the one before him and the one before him and the one in Alabama and the one in Michigan and the ones that I've been listening to online. Maybe they're right. Maybe this this message of turning from sin and trusting in Jesus, maybe it just keeps circling through my life because maybe God wants me to listen to it. Like this call to faithful endurance keeps circling through Revelation because the Holy Spirit wants the church to, to listen to it, be faithful to Christ, endure persecution for His glory until He comes to claim you to Himself. So at the same time, all through Scripture is this other call relayed to everyone who reads it. You are a sinner. And what you don't need is fire insurance from hell. What you need is a life-giving relationship with a God who made you in his image to reflect his glory in the world. And though you've, you've marred that image, though, though you, have, you have broken it, it's like a mirror shattered but still glued in place. It doesn't reflect quite the way that it's supposed to. Though you've done that to your own life and your own ability to reflect God's glory in your life because you've sinned against him, At the same time, there's a God who stands ready to heal all those fractures and make them more perfect than ever ever you could do on your own. But it's a work that he has to do in you. Friends, we don't receive salvation just by showing up at church. We don't receive salvation just by just by simply praying some some words that a pastor tells you to pray. We receive salvation when in the, the real attitude of our hearts, we come before God in humility and say, God... I deserve every one and more of the bowls of wrath that you'll pour out at the end. I deserve them all because I've rebelled against you. And sure, my sin might not be as bad as Hitler, but compared to your holiness, it's not even close. I'm not even close. God, I'm a sinner who's broken. Heart, soul, mind, all of me is messed up because I've tried to be God and I need rescue. And your word tells me, Jesus, your son, is my rescue. So Jesus, you who died for me, you who were raised so that I might be saved from my own, the destruction that I brought on my own life, Jesus, my life is yours. You could pray words like that, similar to that. I don't care what words you pray so long as they're genuine in your heart, so long as it's a genuine pleading to God, coming to God in faith and dependence on Jesus, that he's the only one and the perfect one to rescue you from this. Some of you are Christians, you've been in church a long, 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 long time but you've never trusted Jesus this way. Some of you may be members of our church, but you've never really trusted Jesus this way. You've been coming to church. You maybe prayed a prayer someone told you to repeat. You might've got dunked in a baptistry on a Sunday morning, but you've never really trusted Jesus as Lord. You've never really seen what your sin deserves. All your life you've been thinking, I'm not really that bad. I'm just gonna do good and Jesus will, I'm gonna do my best and and Jesus will, will make up for the rest. Friends, that's not how the gospel works. There's absolutely nothing you bring to the table of your salvation except for all the sin that makes it necessary. And some of you have been relying on your own good deeds in addition to Jesus to be saved. And I'm telling you, that is a false gospel from the pit of hell. There is not a thing that any one of us can do to save ourselves, to make us more deserving of God's grace. We come to him broken, empty-handed, poor in spirit, the way Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who come to the table of God's grace knowing they are bankrupt and unable to buy anything. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Because those who realize I have nothing to give God and only everything that I need to gain from him, those are the ones who receive the kingdom of heaven. Here's, here's, here's the question. Here's the question. Christian, you who call yourself a Christian, and you would think, this, Pastor, this is a sermon for lost people. No, this is a sermon for Christians who've been in church a long time and been inoculated against the gospel of Jesus Christ, who've been vaccinated against the gospel of Jesus Christ by pastors and by churches who tell everybody, just try harder, do better, keep coming to church, you'll be good. Let me, let me just put that myth to death. 
If you try harder, do your best, come to church and be good, you are no more saved than Adolf Hitler on his worst day. This is a sermon to Christians because Christians are so, we are so easily confused into thinking that living a nice life, being a decent person is the same as trusting Jesus. And friends, it's not. It's not. Now, that doesn't mean that trusting Jesus, we don't try to live lives that glorify God and all that we do. Of course we do. That's what we're saved to do. But we're not saved because we do those things. So brother, sister, if you've been coming to church for 60, 80, 90 years, six minutes, maybe it's your first time, and you thought you would be, you would be good with God if you just did your best and showed up at church once in a while, let me disabuse you of that myth today and give you the truth. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. The bowls of God's wrath reveal to us he will judge every sin justly. Friends, I know the sins that I'm guilty of. I don't want to stand under God's wrath. Praise God, Jesus stood under God's wrath in my place. And by faith in him, holding to him and only to him, I'm trusting and looking forward to and rejoicing in the reality that I will not be under God's wrath on that final day, but that even now, beginning today, I'm a recipient of his grace, of his mercy, adopted as a son, brought in as a citizen of his kingdom, and not because I did a darn thing to deserve it, but because what Christ has done for me. So friend, you who may have thought yourself a Christian and realize today you aren't and you need to know Jesus for the first time, today's the day. Know Jesus for real today. Friend, you may be a guest, you may be a visitor, you may be a regular attender and you're realizing I don't know Jesus this way. I'm still counting on myself to save me, on my good deeds to save me from from God's just anger against my sin. Get that straight in your hearts today. And realize there's nothing you bring to the table of your salvation other than the sin that, that, that makes it necessary. And come empty-handed before God and say, God, I have nothing to give you and only all of my sin in my life to, life to offer up and ask for your forgiveness. I'm trusting Jesus who died for me, who took all your wrath in my place that I might be saved. Lord Jesus, change me, make me new, mold yeah. me into your image. Friend, let today be the day of salvation for you. You know what, we're going to circle back through this a few more times because Revelation ain't done yet. So if you don't want to hear the gospel anymore and you don't want to be called to respond to the gospel anymore, you can probably just skip about the next five weeks of church, okay? But if you love the gospel and you who know Jesus, you rejoice in the reality that this wonderful gospel truth has brought about in your life, you'll keep coming and you'll keep singing and you'll keep rejoicing and you'll keep amening the truths of the gospel. And you'll keep decrying those false gospels of the world because you know the true gospel. You know that Jesus ends all things in victory. You'll know that you are one sealed by the Lamb, made made holy, being made holy from the inside out to be a part of his temple, living in the world, reflecting his glory in all the way that you are meant to do. You'll keep rejoicing in God's judgment and his grace and mercy as they're both revealed in Revelation because this is your story. This is our story. If all of us are in this, you're either on this, you're either a recipient of God's wrath or a recipient of his grace. I'm going to shut up and stop now. I started to preach at the end and I should have started at the beginning. <laughs> you're on one side or the other, friends. All through Revelation, it is pushing everybody right? Into one corner or another. You're either opposed to God, you're a friend with the beast, you're assembled against him at Armageddon, or you're sealed by the lamb, covered by his blood, recipient of his grace, clothed in his righteousness. And there is no mushy middle. There is no neutral ground in between. Revelation is pushing all of us here all the time. Why? Because those who know Christ need to be faithful until he returns. And those who don't know Christ need to realize that their time for responding to him in faith is short. So choose, believe, Repent, trust in him that you might rejoice in faithfulness until he comes again. And with that, I close. Let's pray.